Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caprola. Concerts by the CSO on Friday, March 1st through Tuesday, March 5th feature guest conductor Peter Popalka. The program includes the Hebrides Overture by Felix Mendelssohn, Schubert's Symphony No. 6, and after intermission, Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Schubert's Symphony No. 6, a work lasting about 30 minutes. Schubert's contemporaries, even the few who understood the magnitude of his talent, did not think of him as a composer of symphonies. Antonio Salieri, who was one of his first teachers and a man who knew the Viennese music scene as well as anyone in the early years of the 19th century, called Schubert a genius and said that he can write anything, songs, masses, string quartets, but he failed to even mention the symphony. Not one of Schubert's symphonies was well known during the composer's lifetime. Most of them weren't even published until the very end of the 19th century, more than 50 years after Schubert's death. In 1894, while Antonin Dvorak was living in the United States, he wrote an article for the Century Illustrated Monthly magazine considering the reasons Schubert made his way so slowly to popular appreciation and why the symphonies in particular did not gain the immediate admiration of those by other composers. He was young, modest, and unknown, Dvorak writes, and musicians did not hesitate to slight a symphony which they would have felt bound to study had it borne the name of Beethoven or Mozart. The comparison with Beethoven is both inevitable and misleading. Schubert and Beethoven were composing symphonies at the same time in Vienna during the first years of the 19th century, never once meeting or even crossing paths until the very end of Beethoven's life. Each of Beethoven's symphonies was premiered to considerable fanfare in one of Vienna's main public theaters within a year or so of its completion. Schubert's were privately performed in the same city and quickly forgotten. All nine of Beethoven's symphonies were published during his lifetime. Not one piece of Schubert's orchestral music appeared in print during his. And yet, for all his apparent lack of public success with the form, Schubert persisted. He started more symphonies than Beethoven and finished nearly as many, all in a shorter period of time. Schubert was working on a new one at the time of his death. In 1995, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra performed Luciano Barrio's haunting and imaginative rendering, which is based on Schubert's sketches for the symphony. For Dvorak, writing in 1894, Schubert's first six symphonies were recent discoveries, as they were for all musicians in the late 19th century. They were published for the first time in 1884 and 85. He had recently begun to conduct the symphonies, and he highly recommended them to others. The more I study them, Dvorak concluded, the more I marvel. Written in little more than four years, from sometime in 1813 to February 1818, they are among the most impressive and substantial of Schubert's so-called early works, although, as Sir Donald Tovey pointed out long ago, every work Schubert left us is an early work. They are so refined and assured that it is difficult to remember that they are the works of a teenage boy. 
In November of 1816, the Italian Opera Company made its first visit to the great music capital of Vienna, bringing with it Rossini's Tancredi and Lignano Felice. This was Vienna's first taste of Rossini's operas, and soon the city's large musical public, including the 19-year-old Franz Schubert, could not get enough of this intoxicating music. Word of Rossini's recent extraordinary successes in Italy had sent shockwaves through the musical establishment in Germany and Austria. He had first drawn international attention in 1813 with the serious Tancredi and the comedy L'Italiana in Algeri. In the home of the great classical masters, his music had quickly been condemned. He could have become one of the most outstanding vocal composers of our time, wrote the composer Ludwig Spohr, if he had been methodically instructed in Germany and guided on the one true path through means of Mozart's classical masterworks. Schubert went to hear Tancredi and left the theater enraptured. You cannot deny that he has extraordinary genius, he wrote to his friend Anselm Hüttenbrenner. The orchestration is highly original at times, and occasionally so is the vocal writing. In the thrall of the new Rossini rage sweeping Vienna, Schubert composed two overtures in the Italian style, trying out a dazzling new style that immediately changed his own. Schubert's Sixth Symphony is the main beneficiary of his discovery of Rossini's music. Yet, for all the ways the great Italian composer's music enlivened and enriched Schubert's orchestral writing, by 1817, with several symphonies already completed, Schubert had become an assured symphonic composer with a voice of his own. One can still pinpoint influences and cross-references, a Mozartean introduction to open the score, the Haydn-like touch of beginning the Allegro with the winds alone, the instrumental fireworks of Rossini through the movement, a speeded-up coda that echoes the effects of Rossini's signature wind-up crescendos. The third movement, the first in Schubert's output to be labeled a scherzo, resembles Beethoven's in its power and thrust, but more revealing are gestures and ideas, particularly in the finale, that are the seeds of the other C major symphony to come, the one that would eventually be called great to distinguish it from this somewhat slighter one in the same key. With the Sixth Symphony, we find Schubert steeped in the conventions of the classical symphony, but striving to break free and forge his own path, as only the greatest of symphony composers can. It is a work of consolidation, but more important, one of anticipation. After completing this score in February of 1818, Schubert began and abandoned several symphonies, including the one we now know as the Unfinished, but it would be another decade before he would actually finish one last symphony. Program Notes by Philip Huscher on Schubert's Symphony No. 6. And now, on to Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. The performance time, around 36 minutes. Here is what Goethe wrote after he first met Beethoven during the summer of 1812. His talent amazed me. Unfortunately, he is an utterly untamed personality, who is not altogether in the wrong in holding the world to be detestable, but surely does not make it any the more enjoyable either for himself or for others by his attitude. 
We're told that the two men walked together through the streets of Teplitz, where Beethoven had gone for the summer, and exchanged cordial words. When royalty approached, Goethe stepped aside, tipping his hat and bowing deeply. Beethoven, indifferent to mere nobility, walked on. This was a characteristic Beethoven gesture, defiant, individual, strongly humanitarian, intolerant of hypocrisy, and many listeners find its essence reflected in his music. But before confusing the myth with the man, consider that throughout his life, Beethoven clung to the Thon in his name because it was so easily confused with Fawn and its suggestion of lofty bloodlines. Without question, Beethoven's contemporaries thought him a complicated man, perhaps even the utterly untamed personality Goethe found him. He was a true eccentric who adored the elevated term Tondichter, poet in sound, and refused to correct a rumor that he was the illegitimate son of the King of Prussia. But he looked like a homeless person. His outfit once caused his arrest for vagrancy. There were other curious contradictions. He was disciplined and methodical, like many a modern-day concert-goer. He would rise early and make coffee by grinding a precise number of coffee beans, but lived in a squalor he alone could tolerate. Certainly, modern scholarship, as it chips away at the myth, finds him ever more complex. We don't know what Goethe truly thought of his music, and perhaps that's just as well, for Goethe's musical taste was less advanced than we might hope. He later admitted he thought little of Schubert's songs. The general perception of Beethoven's music in 1812 was that it was every bit as difficult and unconventional as the man himself, even perhaps to most ears, utterly untamed. This is our greatest loss today, because Beethoven's widespread familiarity of a dimension known to no other composer has blinded us not only to his vision so far ahead of his time that he was thought out of fashion in his last years, but to the uncompromising and disturbing nature of the music itself. His Seventh Symphony is so well known to us today that we can't imagine a time that knew Beethoven but not this glorious work. But that was the case when the poet and the composer walked together in Teplitz in July 1812. Beethoven had finished the A major symphony three months earlier, envisioning a premiere for that spring that did not materialize. The first performance would not take place for another year and a half, December 8, 1813. That night in Vienna gave the rest of the 19th century plenty to talk about. No other symphony of Beethoven's so openly invited interpretation, not even the sixth, the self-proclaimed pastoral symphony with its bird calls, thunderstorm, and frank evocation of something beyond mere eighth notes and bar lines. To Richard Wagner, Beethoven's seventh symphony was the apotheosis of the dance. Berlioz heard a rond de paison in the first movement. Choreographers in our own time have proven that this music is not, however, easily danceable. And there were other readings as well, most of them finding peasant festivities and Bacchic orgies, where Beethoven wrote simply, Vivace. The true significance of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony is to be found in the notes on the page, in his distinctive use of rhythm and pioneering sense of key relationships. By the time it's over, 
we can no longer hear the ordinary rhythm of a dotted eighth note followed by a sixteenth note in the same way again, and even if we have no technical terms to explain it, we sense that our basic understanding of harmony has been turned upside down. Take Beethoven's magnificent introduction of unprecedented size and ambitious intentions. He begins decisively in A major, but at the first opportunity moves away, not to the dominant E program note as historical practice and textbooks recommended, but to the unlikely regions of C major and F major. Beethoven makes it clear that he won't be limited to the seven degrees of the A major scale, which contains neither C nor F natural, in planning his harmonic itinerary. We will hear more from both keys, and by the time he's done, Beethoven will have convinced us not only that C and F sound comfortably at home in an A major symphony, but that A major can be made to seem like the visitor. But that comes later in his scheme. First, we move from the spacious vistas of the introduction into the joyous song of the Vivace. Getting there is a challenge Beethoven relishes, and many a music lover has marveled at his passage of transition, in which stagnant repeated ease suddenly catch fire with the dancing dotted rhythm that will carry us through the entire movement. The development section brings new explorations of C and F, and the coda is launched by a spectacular, long-sustained crescendo that is said to have convinced Weber that Beethoven was ripe for the madhouse. The Allegretto is as famous as any music Beethoven wrote, and it was a success from the first performance when a repeat was demanded. At the indicated tempo, it is hardly a slow movement, but it is sufficiently slower than the music that precedes it to provide a feeling of relaxation. By designing the Allegretto in A minor, Beethoven has moved one step closer to F major. He now dares to write the next movement in that unauthorized but by now familiar key. And he can't resist rubbing it in a bit by treating A major when it arrives on the scene not as the main key of the symphony, but as a visitor in a new world. We don't need a course in harmony to recognize that Beethoven has taken us through the looking glass and that everything is turned on its head. To get back where we belong, Beethoven simply shatters the glass with the two fortissimo chords that open the finale and ushers us into the triumphant fury of music so adamantly in A major that we forget any past harmonic digressions. When C and F major return, as they were destined to do in the development section, they sound every bit as remote as they did in the symphony's introduction, and we sense that we have come full circle. Program notes by Philip Husher on Beethoven's Symphony No. 7. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.